Hello, thank you for joining us. We are proud to welcome you to our special series, Migration, brought to you by Brill, where we talk about creating a more inclusive world by revamping border policies in this rapidly changing global scenario. I'm your host, Lee Jung Greco. Today, I'm speaking with Sarah Peck. She's a Leverhulme Early Career Researcher at Northumbria University, interested in the connections between migration, development, and civic space. Her article is Reorienting the Diaspora Development Nexus. Sarah, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me. So just tell us, first of all, what is this concept of post-diaspora? Yeah, so I guess um, the concept that I talk about a little bit in the article, this idea of post-diaspora, is really trying to respond to how diaspora can be kind of conceptualised within our sort of contemporary context, I guess. Um, so Suzanne Scaife um, wrote a lot about post-diasporic theorising, and she try, she talks about it as trying to move kind of conversations about place, time, belonging and displacement into a new conceptual space that goes beyond diaspora. There's some really great work um, developing those kinds of ideas by Suzanne, as I mentioned, and her colleagues, Leith Dern and others. Um, and I would really encourage anyone who's interested in this idea to have a look at the, um, the journal, the Caribbean Review of Gender Studies. Um, there's a special issue, issue 13, which is, is all of the articles are really oriented around this idea of the post-diaspora. Um, and as I said, there are some really, really great articles. Um, in, in that journal and in um, another journal called um, The African and Black Diaspora, which is again edited by Suzanne Scaife and Leafdon. And all of these articles, I think, are really trying to respond to concerns about how the idea of diaspora um, can be employed in the contemporary era, which I think has been marked by this kind of increase in and velocity of globalisation, transnationalism. Um, and the idea of post-diaspora has really been, I guess, deployed to try and get us beyond the idea of diaspora. So thinking about second and third generation families, thinking about these kind of complex processes of assimilation, thinking about returns to kind of an identified homeland, um, and also around sort of forced and conscious distancing of an emigrated population from their country of heritage. So I suppose post-diaspora, I suppose, almost tries to speak to the sort of, I suppose, the different positions, mobilities and entanglements that diasporic communities might find themselves in this kind of world where we're kind of in this sort of constant motion, I suppose. Um, and for me, I think the idea really helped to highlight some of the, the sort of sort of more fluid, I guess, sort of geographical fluidities, some of the more kind of temporal complexities and inequalities um, that may be more current, more sort of um, older mobilisations of the idea of diaspora, um, particularly those that are mobilised within the global development space. Um, I think they don't always highlight some of those complexities. Um, so I think post-diaspora is almost, it, it's not separate from diaspora, um, but it's about extending those boundaries um, to think about new ways of being. Um, yeah, so I suppose really the aim of post-diasporic theorising is really to try and extend those conceptualizations of diaspora to think about um, contemporary neoliberal globalisation in a bit more detail. And I guess I'm also just interested, personally, how did you get 
involved in this space. Uh, what attracted you to migration and development? Was there a specific diaspora community that you were looking at? Um, I suppose well, I suppose my interest um, really came from sort of previous work that I've done around um, sort of civil society and global development and the spaces that exist there, and particularly around, I suppose, international partnerships um, and transnational partnerships for global development that, are, that operate in the in the kind of sort of civil society um, and non-governmental space. Um, and I was doing some work with um, some civil society organisations in the Caribbean, um, in Grenada and Barbados, um, and looking at their links with um, international development organisations based in the UK. Um, and I was really interested to find out that a lot of the work, um, a lot of their work um, was being supported by diasporic communities based in the US or Canada, um, the UK and and lots of other places as well. Um, and I guess, I was, so I guess I'm really interested in this sort of idea of kind of transnationalism um, for civic space and for, for and sort of transnational struggles and how how those ideas can cross kind of national borders and boundaries um, and, and the people that, that take those ideas and knowledges um, with them to different places. So I guess so I guess that's really how I became interested in in the sort of connections between I suppose migration and mobility and development and and civil society and kind of civic space. Yeah, and then actually jumping off of that, talking about NGOs and development, uh, how is Western scholarship from the global north and then these multilateral and bilateral organizations shaped our view of the diaspora? Yes, I think I think that's a really sort of interesting, interesting point and something that I'm interested in exploring more, really. Um, so I think in this sort of global development space, which is the one that I'm kind of, I guess, most interested in, I think the idea of diaspora-led development policy has really become much more visible over the last 20 years or so. Um, so originally there was this idea of the sort of brain drain kind of discourse, but I think over the last 20 years it's been a much more, much greater attempts to really sort of invert that, that, that idea. Um, so in the late, I guess, 1990s, maybe the early 2000s, thinkers, scholars, um, both within academia and outside of it, were starting to recognise um, that diasporic communities really continue to be quite influential in, in their homelands. And I suppose that's in inverted commas in numerous different ways. Um, so the transfer of professional skills um, to scientific networks, um, to remittances. And, you know, obviously that those kinds of, I suppose those kinds of transfer had been going on for a long time. Um, and it was only really, I suppose, when they became recognised within sort of institutional space that it, it sort of got shouted about really. Um, and I think the remittances, remittances became a very big deal within that. So there was lots of discussion at the time about the quantity and resilience of remittances. Um, and they was kind of seen as key for accessing education, healthcare, um, and other social welfare in countries kind of predominantly of the global south. Um, so I think that kind of pushed diasporic communities into being seen as these sort of agents for development, um, often connected to the global south in the eyes of kind of states and multi and bilateral institutions. Um, and I think, I suppose, the dominant ways that diaspora, or this idea of the diaspora has been mobilised and sort of positioned within the global development space, I suppose, really focuses on diasporic communities from the, you know, sort of from the global south again, you know, obviously that's a, that can be a problematic term, um, residing in the global north. Um, but and I suppose the relationship really framed um, 
by this idea of transferring often entrepreneurial knowledge, skills, investments in order to offset the global inequalities, which have been kind of premised by and accentuated by um, the sort of neoliberal world model. Um, and I think conceptually, I suppose, this, this idea of the diaspora option often seems to be built on quite limited ideas of what constitutes a diaspora. Um, so presuming this kind of attachment to a very static and unchanging home place um, or entrepreneurial success in, in the country of residence. Um, and I think really those sort of we you sort of saw these kind of insights coming out of um, academia and other institutions, but it they coincided with a sort of policy environment within the global development space that was shifting as well. So we saw more of um, discussion around the good governance agenda, ideas of social capital, um, the securitization of development, this, this, the importance of partnerships and skills development. So, And this is a really memorable uh, paper that I read um, by Lisa Trotz and Beverly Mullins, and they talk about the World Bank describing diasporas as like discovering an untapped pool of oil. Um, so the World Bank was thinking about diasporas as this kind of resilient, active, entrepreneurial sort of human capital who could repair, I think, some of the damage done by macroeconomic reforms. Um, so the World Bank was this kind of really early and sort of vocal advocate for what they call the diaspora option. And they often drew on um, Israel and China to, to kind of back up their argument. Um, so diaspora was these sort of diasporic communities were seen as having this advantage. Um, so they had local knowledge, they could be flexible, they could transcend um, the bureaucracies that might be associated with the state. Um, and, and I think then that, that kind of followed through to bilateral institutions, so maybe USAID, DFID, GIZ, um, and lots of others. Um, and they started to develop and fund these kind of diaspora-led development programmes, which I think really reinforced this idea um, of diasporas as this kind of form of mobile human capital that could be really sort of leveraged and harnessed. So diaspora almost became quite instrumentalised within, I think, some of these narratives. So that's a really interesting point about the World Bank, and I do have a question on that. But before I get to that, I'm curious, uh, why did they cite Israel and China when they were talking about uh, diaspora communities? What was it about those examples that uh, stuck out to the World Bank? I think I presume they were seen as sort of very sick of, of, of states um, that had very successfully harnessed um, what was seen as their, their diaspora populations to support their own development. And I think they probably were used as examples to demonstrate um, how important um, a diasporic population can be to, to a state's development. Um, so obviously, I, I guess Israel has a particularly significant um, and I guess a complex diaspora um, but tapping into their diaspora to support the development of the Israeli nation. Um, and I suppose the World Bank probably realised that actually those examples showed how states could mobilise um, their diaspora for their own, to leverage diaspora for their own benefit, I suppose. So, yeah, as I said, that leads to one of my questions, just wondering how these international development agencies like the World Bank, for example, reinforce uh, diasporic inequalities and racial hierarchies. Um, and I just find that phrase so interesting. I, I think you said that they view them as, uh, you know, as valuable as oil reserves. Um, seems a bit cynical. So just wondering if you can talk about those concepts a little bit. 
Yeah, thanks. And I think that I think that phrase really kind of stood out to me as well. This sort of yeah, the comparison with oil and and sort of humans and oil is you know seems particularly particularly sort of crude and like you say instrumentalized. Um, I suppose there's lots there's lots of critiques of of the sort of diaspora initiatives um, that I was talking about before. Um, so Michel Leguer um, in his book about the post-diasporic um, condition talks about these the idea of diaspora being kind of synonymous with racialized hierarchies of belonging, they main boundary maintenance and sticking with borders and projecting this idea of deserving migrants. Um, so he argues that the idea of diaspora can create exclusions and actually further discriminations. Um, and Kalpana Wilson um, has written loads on this. So I just direct anyone to her 2012 book, um, Race, Racism and Development, in which she discusses this in more detail. Um, and there's also a school of thought um, that diaspora initiatives such as those organised by the World Bank or the European Union, I guess, can be seen as projects that are primarily attempting to kind of modernise um, and reproduce Western values in the global south. Um, and I suppose then that the, within that school of thought, you'd see the development of the diaspora led initiatives um, can be understood as part of an extension of Western governmentality um, onto states in the global south. So, you try, so an attempt to kind of normalise economies um, and states that are seen as threatening and, and as a means through which to really securitise development. And I think, I guess I suppose critiques of those sorts of programmes having the potential to reinforce and reproduce inequalities and racial hierarchies. So, for example, they might reproduce ideas of what it means to be, um, you know, kind of a good migrant, um, in inverted commas, the contributions required to be kind of respectable um, in, in Britain or maybe the global north. Um, and this, as I said before, this desire to promote this kind of very particular um, Western or maybe white version of, of modernity. So Kapana Wilson um, has argued this, I guess, very particularly um, for the Muslim community in Great Britain, who are sort of repeatedly giving, given the job of civilising, again, using that word kind of carefully and in inverted commas, those at home and taking kind of these ideas of Western values with them, whilst paradoxically being excluded from British society um, through schemes such as prevent. So prevent is part of the government's anti-terrorism strategy um, and other Islamophobic kind of rhetoric. So what I suppose we can see then is we've got these kind of sort of racial logics that can be seen as integral to the diaspora development nexus. Um, and they're perhaps, I suppose, almost contradictory to the way that the, um, the nexus has been positioned. So I guess sometimes it's been positioned as this almost this antidote to the whiteness of development. Um, yet also the attempts to, to challenge that um, can also be understood as at the same time reproducing the kind of those kind of racialized hierarchies of belonging. Um, and there's been lots of arguments that, that nation states, when they employ diaspora strategies and infrastructures, um, they can also produce this kind of exclusionary notions of belonging so that they are creating, I guess, an idealised diaspora community based on maybe socioeconomic status, gender, ethnicity um, or other kind of factors that, that equate with respectability. Um, and I think... It's really important as well to kind of think about these policies and these strategies, not necessarily in isolation from other kind of immigration policies and discourses. Um, so Helen Pellegrin and Beverly Mullins argue that particularly in Europe, um, another factor that motivated support for this a diaspora option was the belief that emerging immigration security concerns could be solved through these types of interventions. 
So I think there are probably questions that need to be asked about how, so for example, the UK, how we can continue to encourage diasporic engagement and development, but at the same time um, implement kind of increasingly hostile immigration environments. Um, you know, that there's sort of this sort of a paradox there, I think. Um, so I suppose we're seeing this these discourses and policies associated with hostile environments, um, increasing insecurity, discrimination and marginalisation felt by racialized communities, um, for example, living in Britain, regardless of their immigration status. Um, yet there remains this kind of emphasis on what the diaspora should do as part of development. Um, and I think it seems important to, to try and explore um, some that paradox in more detail. So how do conditions after movement shape forms of diasporic civic engagement? You mentioned the example of Steve McQueen's fairly recent film, Mangrove. Can you talk about that? Yeah, sure. So I suppose it, the I think one of the main ideas that comes out of post-diasporic thinking is this ability to shift its kind of temporal focus. Um, so I suppose while diaspora maybe is more normally associated with movements, journeys, looking back I think post-diaspora gives a little bit more emphasis on this kind of idea of the conditions after movement um, and Pat Noxolo in her paper in um, the African and Black Diasporas journal um, talks about these kind of intertwined processes of settling looking back and looking forward and I think one example of this is how I suppose associational life um, of diasporic communities might be constrained in the countries they move to and how the kind of civic space available for diasporic activities and struggle may be more greatly constrained. So it might be through legal, cultural, society, societal or kind of financial measures. Um, and I think I saw, I watched um, Steve McQueen's film Mangrove um, and I felt like that was a really good example of, of um this kind of squeezing of associational life being portrayed in popular culture. So the film details police violence, which was directed towards black community organisers in London in the 1970s. Um, it's part of an anthology series called Small Acts. Um, and the mangrove um, episode in particular is about the mangrove restaurant, um, which was a restaurant in, in London um, in set up by a chap called Frank Critchlow, who had come to the UK from, from Trinidad. This was in the late 1960s or early 70s and became a hub for community. And this, the Mangrove restaurant became a hub for community um, and community organising. It became a meeting space for black activists, radicals and intellectuals, but was soon the target of racial discrimination and was unjustly and unfairly targeted by the police in a series of violent raids, despite absolutely no evidence of any wrongdoing. Um, so in a bid to stop these destructive raids, Frank, his friends and the wider community um, organised a peaceful protest, which was met by police aggression and violent provocations. So nine of the protesters, protesters were arrested um, and charged with a serious crime of riot in the fray. These protesters became known as the Mangrove Nine and went to trial in 1970. And the trial was seen as this kind of landmark trial in itself as two of the defendants, um, Althea Jones, LeConte and Darkus Howe, opted to defend themselves. And they also demanded that the trial was heard by an all-black jury. Um, that, that sort of plea was eventually unsuccessful. Um, but after rejecting a total of 63 candidate jurors, um, the defendants did finally ensure that two of the 12 jurors were black. And after a trial lasting 55 days, they were all cleared of the main charge. 
And the trial was the first time that a judicial acknowledgement of racial prejudice um, in the Metropolitan Police. So obviously this is a huge and key aspect of British history. Um, but I think also highlights the importance of spaces like the Mangrove Restaurant um, as a community hub for black community organising um, and just shows how threatened and attacked these spaces have been and I think can continue to be um, perhaps in different ways. Yeah, have you seen any recent threats to those physical spaces? Uh, I'm thinking especially when you see a lot of these immigrant communities uh, that uh, become gentrified over the years, wondering how that factors in. Yeah, I mean, I think I haven't sort of thought directly about that. I think that's an interesting point around um, how gentrification is squeezing um, space for community organising. And, and I think um, in areas of London in particular, that is certainly something that's happening, um, I think, around Dalston. Um, maybe an area in which that's happening, where you see this sort of increasing gentrification and the you know, the squeezing of community space, um, both physical and I suppose um, in, in more subtle ways as well for community organising. Um, I think there's some interesting discussions, certainly in the UK, around um, the Black Lives Matter protests um, that occurred during the coronavirus pandemic and about how sort of space for, for organising and space for protest within those conditions um, and, and then what that led to. Um, and I think there's some, there's also been some interesting examples, I suppose, from the sort of mid-2000s where scholars have written about um, Islamic community associations becoming, um, I suppose, delegitimized um, through unfounded connections um, with terrorism. And again, using threat you know using this idea of, of threat um completely unjustifiably um as a way of squeezing kind of civic space for for those sorts of forms of organizing and, and making it much more difficult um to be legitimate um, within those spaces that's sarah peck her article is reorienting the diaspora development nexus sarah thanks again thanks lee you are listening to the Humanities Matter podcast. You can find more podcast episodes on Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Google Podcast.